G'day and welcome to Green and Gold Rugby, Pod Slam number 99, just one away from the ton. Um, we're sponsored by Strike, GPS tracking, keeping your assets in check, whether it's one vehicle or a fleet of 10,000. That just ran off the tongue, didn't it? We've got a big show for you tonight. As I speak to you, they are just announcing uh, the Lions squad. We're going to talk more about that later on. Joining me in this frenzy of activity is Scott Allen. G'day, mate. How are you? Great, Matt. Looking forward to tonight. We've got lots to get through, haven't we? Oh, yeah. A load to get through. And to start off, at the top of the show, we have got a legend of the game. The only man to ever play for, for, to represent three countries. Um, he's won a Grand Slam. He's been in a World Cup. He's done just about everything. It's Mr. Topo Rodriguez. Topo, how are you, mate? G'day, Matt. I'm far from what you just said. I'm a lot more humble and smaller than what you said. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sure. Well, you can't deny that there are things that you have done, though. True, true, true. Yeah, yeah. that's history. Yeah, that's the history. But look, look mate, thanks for coming on tonight. Um, but what, why don't we start then from, from the beginning? Uh, you know, how did you get into rugby? I mean, obviously you grew up, grew up in Argentina, but how did all the whole story begin for you? Okay, the story goes like this. Um, I was in the uh, last year of um, high school and I had a, a good friend uh, that used to play rugby. Mm-hmm. And he invited me one day and I went, went along and, and I had this crazy thing going 15 people on one side trying to kill the other 15, mm-hmm. referee in the middle that looked like he didn't know anything. And uh, it really was uh, quite a, an eye-opening experience. And soon after that, they all, you know, finished the game, got together, opened a few beers and uh, barbecue going and music and singing. And I, I just couldn't, I was beside myself seeing that, that scenery. Yeah. I've never seen, I've been in sports, you know, for quite a long time, but never seen the camaraderie like in rugby. That was the beginning to understand it. The following year, I go to university to um, study psychology. And um, soon enough, another friend said, oh, come and play with us. And off I went and I started playing uh, as a back in, in the wing, blind wing. Yeah. And then I progressed through the back line until a clever coach said, no, you have to play in the forwards and come here and play breakaway. And, and the rest is history when I went to the front row. So that's pretty much how I started. Oh, well, okay. So, so yes, yeah, started out the world, started, you know, your career as Twinkle Toes. Uh, yes. Well, I didn't have any. <laughs> I wasn't much of a, a <laughs> twinkler, but it, um, anyway, I was 19 at the time. I liked uh, coming, but um, anyway, I was very fit and uh, always trained. I was a basketball player and I had very good hands. Yeah. I had good coordination and good reaction and that, I guess, uh, helped me. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, um, yeah. Okay. And so you, you played, I think, 13-odd tests for the Pumas. Is that right? I'll be precise, 15. 15. Okay. <laughs> I robbed you of a couple there. And, and how did the whole trans- – yeah. how, how did the transition from you to Australia, from Argentina to Australia happen? What initiated that? 
Okay, in uh, back in uh, 1981, I came to Sydney uh, with my club, Tala from Cordova, mm-hmm. and we played only, we stayed three days and we played one game against Eastern Suburbs. We got flogged. We lost now 36 to 6 or something. Yeah. And I really was uh, struck by, by Sydney. Uh, we didn't go anywhere else, but uh, it was just beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then we went back, and in 1983, two years later, I came with the Argentinian selection, and we went to many different places like uh, Narrabri and Townsville and ACT, Brisbane, Sydney, and all the rest. And I really liked it even better. I like the people, the climate, the you know everything. Uh, so when I went back after we scored two push over tries in Brisbane in Baltimore, uh, Scott, are you there? Yes, yes. Uh, just reminding people, you know. <laughs> anyway, it is, that was in '83. It, it scrubbed from the Queenslander that. memories. And then what? Oh uh, yes, yeah. Selective hearing. Yeah. Um, then I went back and I said to my wife, look, this place, uh, it's got a lot going for it. Why don't we try it? And she said, all right, let's do it. So the following year, uh, well, actually end of 83, I sent three letters to three clubs uh, in Sydney. And the only club that responded was Warringah. And they organized the visa, permanent resident visa for, for the whole family and myself. And uh, and that's how we, we came out of my own bat. Nobody from the Australian rugby or anywhere else asked me. That was my own decision. I wanted, And I came here most to help the family with opportunities for life and for living mm-hmm. than anything else. And rugby was a secondary thing. That's what I'm trying to say. Wow, that's amazing. Because if I understand it right, so you, ordered, you organized that all off your own bat. So it wasn't like, you know, Australian rugby... Th- said here we go we've found a prop that we want you know you initiated no, you initiated absolutely. it all but the legend is yeah. that, that within 10 weeks of you arriving in sydney you were playing a test for the wallabies is that right exactly well i was selected to play for new south wales and and at the end of that game they selected the uh, wallaby squad to go to fiji so That's within amazing. 10 weeks i was uh, yes touring fiji and playing my first test with the wallabies so with that tour to Fiji, was Alan Jones the coach then? Correct, yes. We played, uh, uh, from memory, we played three games and uh, one was a test. Okay. And we won. Great. And so that was all the lead up to that famous, you know, 84 Grand Slam. Because I know, Scott, you've got a... Uh, not quite, not quite. Not quite. Before that, it was a, a full tour of the All Blacks and we played three tests against the All Blacks. Oh, okay. Here in Sydney. In Sydney, Brisbane, and Sydney again. And who were you scrumming against in the All Blacks then? Uh, would have been Gary Knight. Mm-hmm. And and was that like a? Can you remember that being like a step up in international rugby or a, a step? Or was was that a step up in international rugby playing the All Blacks at that time? Or no, I've already been. I've already played six years for Argentina. Of so course, yeah. Playing against the All Blacks, yes, is always a, a, a huge, a big test, but yeah. uh, I wouldn't say there was a day and light difference. Okay. And what about, so you, and then, so you had that, that those tests and uh, you went on the tour um, to, to, uh, to, to, you know, to the Grand Slam. I mean, I think, Scott, you, you, were pull, you pulled out one of the highlights of that today, didn't you? You were having a look at a video, is that right? Yes, I did. Of course, I was watching that fabulous pushover try, Topo. 
Um, and in oh, fact, I've yes. got it up on got it up on the screen in front of me now, just watching it all happen. And so you're wonderful. in the front. Yeah. yeah, it was wonderful. It's one of the best moments in Australian rugby, isn't it? It was. That was uh, the beginning of the resurgence, and that was the beginning of the collapse of of the Welsh. Yeah, and so when I was watching it, I was watching a bit of the commentary from you know all the Australian players and the Welsh players, and the Welsh were talking about how good their scrum was, and they pushed everyone in the world around the park. And then there's little little old Australia came out and actually scored a push over try, and they also talked about the intensity of the scrum that day. Yes. So, so your front row that day, there was there was you at loose head, there was Tom Launton at hooker and uh, Andy McIntyre at tight head. Is that it? Correct. Yep. And had you guys played much together then? I just can't remember what the chronology was. Well, we started uh, playing, I guess, from Fiji. We we have played, uh, you know, let's say two games there, plus the three tests against the All Blacks, that's five. So uh, we played some games, but not a lot. But but we trained very hard. I can assure you. And and what was it in the? What do you think it was? I mean, you, you talk about the training, but uh, how much of it was technical? How much of it do you think was attitudinal? That that made the difference between what, where you guys Look, had been it, and what it, you took. Um, in my view, it was a whole package mm. of uh, first the personnel. We had players that were fit and strong. Uh, we had the, the element there. Uh, then technique, uh, we, I contributed helping with what I knew and with things that uh, could be, um, you know, modified or, or adapted and whatnot. Uh, Alan Jones allowed me to say a few things occasionally here and, here and then. And also the technique was about the, the preparation. We trained very, very hard. We just... Uh, we had every training session. We spent about an hour scrummaging, sometimes a little less, but it was really, really, uh, you know. And um, it'd be fair to say right now that when we left uh, Sydney, left Australia, we weren't we were a bit out of form because the club games finished and all the semi-finals and all all the jazz, and we had a gap of about four to five weeks that we haven't played. Even though you train, but you form to keep it by playing. So the first two weeks in the UK, we were very rusty uh-huh. and play sometimes very poorly. However, when we passed the six or seven week mark, we were superbly fit and we were confident and we were winning and everything came together. Great. So I'm going to let me uh, jump out of chronology there and just say, because I love watching those those uh, scrums. Sorry? Well, I love watching those scrums from that time um, because, you know, there, there wasn't, the, you know, it was a real wrestle. The, the engagement was so different. How do you compare scrums then and now? What, you know, are they the same thing to you? Uh, do you think it's... No, not at all. They're completely different. The rules have... Some of the rules uh, are the same, mm. but other other parts are, are different. The engagement is completely... Or has been completely different. It's, it's going to change again. But um, uh, it, it technically, it was done in a different way, for, just to to put it right on the spot. The... The scrum before the 80s, the scrum normally would pack about, let's say, 70 centimeters, 70 or 80 centimeters off the ground. Yeah. And around the 80s, we were packing a lot lower. 
And this is because other teams like Argentina in 1983 were having a, a power scrum with a coordinated push and, and all, the, all those uh, technical bits. So the opposition had to get lower to counter that. So the, the, then that changed the uh, the um, uh, the shape and the uh, technique with the players. The hookers started to get lower, and they didn't hook. They just went on more for the push. So the whole thing really changed in that sense. It became a lot more powerful. It wasn't just a, a wrestle on the spot, so to speak. And to uh, to accentuate it even more. Uh, it'd be fair to say that previously, so pre-80s, it was more an upper body wrestle mm. with the legs not doing so much. But when it changes, it's not so much upper body and it's a lot more leg work. Yeah. Can you picture that? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I know, I, I know exactly what you're talking about, um, having, having seen a few of those. I guess my question to you is, you know, uh, which which is better? Is it is it possible to say which is better? Or which would you prefer to see in the game? The, the something closer to what it was was like, or something closer to what it is like now? I'm it's in between. I would like to see, and this is uh, almost like uh, yeah, <laughs> the giveaway. Yeah. I would like to see the scrum the way we played in eighty four, eighty five, eighty six. Mm. In eighty seven, we sort of lost a bit of the way. Uh, but uh, our scrum, when we even when we won the Blazeslaw Cup in, in New Zealand, and it was very compact, very solid, and fit guys. They could run, they could push. We we were we had a, a very good combination, and I like to see that better. So it's a lot, a bit of work with the legs, not so much the upper body because the upper body thing and the arms and and the grips and all that is, is allows for trickery or for you know just stupid silly things mm-hmm. and it's not needed we've talked a bit about the, the technical side there i mean why don't we take a step back so what are you up to these days what are you doing with yourself well i um i have just uh written a book last year been published it's called the art of scrummaging mm-hmm. quite aptly yes <laughs> and uh so i'm promoting it and uh, going around to different countries and uh, trying to sell some books and do coaching clinics and public speaking and, and all that sort of thing. Yep. Um, so, um, and I write. I, uh, I write in English and Spanish. Uh, I just love doing it. Uh, so I get into different subjects and sometimes it's rugby, other times it'll be something else. Uh, what what um, other things What other things uh, do you write about? Oh, I would be philosophical about life, about what um, you know people do, idiosyncrasies, and uh, all sorts of whatever comes to me that is curious enough, I'll mm-hmm. just get into it and, and write. It, lately, I have written something about the scrum and the refereeing, so that may be a, may prick the ears of some people <laughs> about my views and what I see, um, because in this problem of the scrum, and that leads me into it, is the problem affects everyone, and everyone should be responsible for fixing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and referees are not exempt. The law needs to be modified. The players need to be taught. The coaches need to be taught, and referees as well, and the administrators. Everyone, a holistic approach. Where I use one example, um, I'd say that professional rugby in the last 18 years has become a monster of three heads. 
that you have to feed constantly. Mm-hmm. And these three heads are the game that we know, the show for these potatoes, and the business. So you've got to everyone, as I said before, all the stakeholders need to look after those three aspects. You cannot be a player and say, oh, no, I'm just playing the game and then I go home. You can't. Yeah. So everything you're doing, you need to protect the game because you're protecting yourself, which is your business. Yes. If you go and, and uh, collapse the scrum and fool around and get a guy broken neck and you get sent off, you won't play for another, who knows, six months. Then that's loss of income. The other player also will have a problem with the injuries. So it, it's the, the non-responsibility doesn't work. This is what I see with the moment we have professional sport, everybody needs to pull the weight. Yes. Yeah, so you're saying that professionalism has pushed people into doing things that isn't necessarily the best for the sport. I think in, in professionalism in rugby, because other other sports have uh, far superior the, the amount of um, you know that have been professional. Mm. American football, for example, they've been professional for eighty years or more, ninety years. So they are a lot more savvy in what they do. But in rugby, uh, some people are overpaid, and others are underpaid. Some areas are under, not unattended. Another area, yeah. um, and as a professional sport, it needs to be a lot more attention on the human resources of it. Mm. So a coach um, needs to know about rugby and coach and do all that, but also needs to understand the dynamics of, of having or coaching 15 guys on the field and having another 15 guys uh, substitutes and then another 15 or 20 as ancillary staff. So the, the coach or the manager or the person, whoever the person in charge, needs to look after and look around, and he's got 50 or 60 people every day. Yeah. And if you are a good uh, general manager, you need to talk to each one of them at least three minutes. Yeah. So multiply 60 by three, and your time goes very quickly. Mm. And the, the moment you don't talk with them, that, let me finish this, round it off. The moment you don't talk to someone, they start grieving or groveling, and then you may have problem, may, and this is speculation, like the Melbourne Rebels. Yeah. Well, but actually, you, you've, you, hear, you hear stuff that is not together. Yeah. No, you've led me into a question. We had someone from Twitter um, ask, um, a guy called Sean King, and he said these sorts of incidents that have come up, you talk about the ones with rebels, so you know, like the one that happened with Kirtley Beale um, a few weeks back. Um, how would those sorts of been, incidents been dealt with in your day? You know, would it have been different? Well, we had a, 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 like a filters. The first filter was just the, the hierarchy of players, half a dozen you know, old guys mm-hmm. that would be what and maintaining the discipline and ensuring that everything is all right. If the things got too out of hand, they will go to the next coach. In the, in the last thing, he will go to the manager when it's just you know, untenable. But we would we would stop. The players would stop a lot of stuff, silly stuff, or just, you know, this is silly. You know, it's just mm. product of alcohol and going out and whatnot. We used to do a lot of, um, not policing, but, you know, 
perfect type of uh, watching the place. Yeah. And so, Scott, so uh, the, these guys will have too much money, too much uh, time. I don't know, uh, but they need to have more responsibility about the game, the show, and the business. Yeah. Well, and I guess there's that thing where you, in the old days you had that filter. These days, unfortunately, it's very easy for these to get to bypass that, you know, with social media and everything else. You know, it, it gets out in the open. Very difficult. And, and when you go to a country like South Africa, where they're all absolutely fanatic, not only the players, but just the media, and they're all waiting for the scoop. Yeah. So they, they use, you know, tactics or stratagem or something to to get the players, to the visiting players to fail. And yeah. I mean, they, I remember quite a few years ago, it was um, Matt Henjak and Matt Dunning and uh, to Kiri, I think, and Sila, they were all involved in some some sort of problem. It's always something happening. It's, it's like um, you know they are set up by the by the locals. Yeah, it does always seem to go off the rails there, doesn't it? But I mean, look, we've taken a fair bit of time. But, but you know, you you could be set up, but if you are prone to aggression and to stupidity, yeah. uh, no amount of uh, reason will stop you. You know that they need to understand that. Yeah. So, Scott, did you have a, 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 fi- a final question for Topo? Yeah, Topo, I did. Obviously, your your book is considered now the Bible of scrummaging and you know, a lot of time and effort going into that. And, <laughs> and, and you know, it, it's a bit of a legacy for you. You've left something there that, you know, will be well, will be studied for years, I would think. But I just wanted to ask you, and you're doing I consulting. Hope so. it's, got a, it's got a lot of, look, it's got a lot of very vali- valuable information. Even if they change the rules, uh, or the, of the engagement and whatnot, still he's got a lot of uh, thinking and uh, reasoning. He's challenging people to look at different ways of doing things. He's got history, he's got philosophy, he's got psychology, of it, but he's got plenty of information. It took Absolutely. me 15 years to put it all together. Yeah. So as you go around the world promoting... Now, the if you say that he's a variable, if you say that he's a variable, what I would say is that people, before they buy it, need to do 100 scrums. Okay. Well, and as you go around the world promoting the book and doing some consulting coaching, are you seeing a trend around the world that people are spending less and less time on the scrum and it's not as important or not considered as important as it used to be? Well, that's a bit of a, I wouldn't say, it could be a tricky, it's not a tricky question, but it's a very uh, complex situation because it's obvious that the the law and the, the IRB is reducing, for different reasons, they are reducing the amount of scrums. In my day, we used to pack down 30 in the test match, 30 easy. Today, you're talking about 12, 15, 17 maybe. So it's been reduced. So then, then somebody may think, oh, well, this is not that important, so we won't spend any, any time in it. But watch out. The power of the scrum hasn't diminished. If the other pack touches you, it could crack your neck. So there are less scrums, but they're more important because you cannot be down in there. I think it's, it's a false sense of security to think that you have less scrums spend less time. Um, and, and it can still That's be used as a tactical my, uh, weapon to attack, can't it? it? And it should be because here is a big misconception. A lot of people talk a notion with the idea about the idea that, oh, that's the only way of quick restarting the game and, 
and getting on with the, the business. No, 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 no. Nobody. That's tactics. Nobody. Knew. Another another big uh, grudge of mine. The referee gets into telling you when you play the ball. The referees should are only about the law. They should never talk to the players about the tactics, mm. when you play it and how you play it. This is the article that I've just written about. Mm. So it's it's a, that is problematic to me. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, yeah, I don't know if I lost your question, but um, no, I just, get it with um, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I think you answered that. It was about using the scrum as an attacking weapon. Um, and uh, Yes, I was going to say, yeah. the tactics, exactly. That one of the beauties of rugby as a whole is to outsmart white folks in the opposition. And then they outmaneuver you doing something else. So you can always use your, your scrum to not only to dominate the opposition, but to attack from there or to continue with the forwards. So whatever you choose to do, you have about you know, 15, 20 different options. Yep. So why does it have to be? Who said that have to be like a little teller machine that you go bing, 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 and then you get the ball and up you go? It mm. shouldn't be. That is, they are killing the game with that. Mate, we've taken a lot of your time, especially with... Especially with technical difficulties tonight, so we apologise for that. <laughs> no problem. Thanks for coming on tonight. My pleasure too. Okay. Thanks, mate. Cheers, mate. Right there, right there. Right. Joining me now uh, to talk about the Lions announcement, which has only just happened, uh, fresh off the press, is Scotsman... Alan Dimmick, blogger and writer for Rugby World Mag uh, and mate of mine, somebody who I've drunk some horrible things with in the past. Um, he, he, he's known for that amongst his friends, by the way. Um, Alan, how are you, mate? Uh, Scotty, how are you getting on? No, I'm very well. So, mate, tell us, what's what's happened? I mean, it, it seemed like it was the biggest hyped sort of... Um, I, on Twitter, all I was seeing was, you know, nervous journos tweeting pictures of an empty presser for, for minutes and minutes and then it all kicked off was it worth the wait was it was it as shocking as people thought it might be there was a yeah there was a sense that there was a lot of journalists uh jointly wetting themselves at the same time it went i think with warren gatland in charge it went largely as you would have hoped it would have there was talk about there being surprises coming out of the blocks i think the main surprises come back that you picked horrible campaigners like dylan hartley ahead of guys like Murphy best it's a, very much a Warren Gatlin team, I think. You're right about the outrage on Twitter. I mean, I think the word Welsh and Pess are the two words together most so far today. <laughs> um, when you look at that back row that they've selected, and you've got three distinctive Welsh players, guys like Chris Robshaw missing out. Yeah, um, yeah there's, a, there's a bit of contention flying to Britain at the moment. Yeah, I mean, so Robshaw, because, I mean, he was even, wasn't he a captain contender until only a few weeks ago? It's uh, well, it depends who you listen to. I mean, you tend to get you talk about hype. We tend to get caught up in hype in this country, yeah. where we've got uh, six nations are going on. The first games played and already this tournament we've ever seen in our lifetime. <laughs> and uh, I think I think during that six nations, Chris Robshaw, a lot of people, he's a sure to be captain. He's leading England, but then you know they got a bit of a rude awakening in that six nations. They got played pretty awful against Italy, and then they got royally humped by the Welsh mm. and uh, I think that might have been his um, his chances of being captain down this morning and then um, with Harlow just formed 
the turn the Viva Premiership and then the Hanley Cup, and I think that might be well somewhere. Right. So you just broke up a little bit there, but you're just saying Harlequins didn't do so well in the Heineken Cup. Is that right? Uh, as the captain of that team, I think um, Chris Robshaw's had to carry in terms of line selection for that. Gosh, so it's, a, it's a steep price to pay, isn't it? Um, but, but, mate, what, what about no Rory Best? What's going on there? Well, I think um, at this moment, Ireland might be burning because of that decision. They've, picked, they've dropped him and they've picked... Um, uh, grizzled, gnarled, nasty might be used to describe Dylan Hartley. He's um, the surprise selection ahead of um, Rory Best, who had a shoo-in to start these tests um, against you fellas. Um, and yeah, he's been he's been let out. Him and uh, I think it's the two most shocking uh, misses in this squad, and certainly one that the Irish. I mean, the Ireland are pretty happy. I think after a diabolical Six Nations, they've got nine selections in there. Mm. Um, and I think they'll be pretty happy, but he's the one, the big one that they'd say, well, hold on a second. He was a test starter. What's going on here? And, and so is there a feeling, though, because, I mean, Dylan's originally a Kiwi, isn't he? And then the, the, isn't there uh, one or two other selections in the squad? So isn't there, was it, is it Maitland? Yeah, Sean Maitland. Um, he is, well, I'm going to support him as a Scotsman here <laughs> because he is one of our only three selections. Um, you know, line sports selections when you're Scottish is a bit like Christmas Day, except that you have to watch out for the good presents. <laughs> um, so we've got we've got Stuart Hogg uh, and Maitland in the back three, and I think you thing is I think Aussies will be pretty au fait with the the playings of Maitland as he's as he plays for the Canterbury Crusaders. Mm. Um, I think he's probably we talk about a lot when it comes to lines and I think he's genuinely a left field selection that's caught a lot of people off guard yeah. um, but he's he's, um, he's impressed since he's been in, in this country for a short period um, he's got a, a genuine work ethic and engine and I suppose chucking in something that might spice things up a little bit okay. uh, can only be a good thing but yeah he's uh, surprised a few folk and from an England point of view no Tom Wood and from an Aussie point of view we're pretty happy to see there's no Ashton there what do you think about those? Uh, no, no. Was that Ashton you said there? You broke up a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, a few friends and I got together yesterday, and we were talking about if we were to play Lion Selection Bingo, um, which things would pop up the most? Words like disgrace. Words like I'm not going to watch the tour anymore. And I think where's Ashton was one thing that we all agreed on was was going to cause a lot of outrage. Um, He's not had a fantastic season. Um, I think it's the true England fans are the ones that have been trumping him the most. Um, I'm not surprised that he hasn't been picked. Um, I think a lot of... When, when it comes to this, some selections you can pick on reputation and others you've got to go with form. His form hasn't been great, but of course, a, lo- a thing that a lot of people remember is that wonder try against Australia all those years ago. Mm. Um, and it's... Uh, that's never going to be enough to see you through to a squad that's going to be touring for over a month in a test atmosphere. You can't really take someone on on a hope that they might recreate something from a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, so I think it's only fair, but it's um, that's one that I think the Twitter machine might have melted off the back of that one. <laughs> and Alan, Alan, talking about reputations, what the hell is Matt Stevens doing there? Well, this is... I don't know which side to go in. I don't know whether to jump in and defend him and say, Warren Gatland likes a bit of edge 
Um, he likes a bit of experience, obviously. He thinks that we've got the harsh uh, environment that we've just spoken about, that maybe we needed to bring someone in. But, I mean, internationally in the wilderness, retired, uh, wasn't in the running. Um, but off the back of Saracen's doing quite well in the, the Heineken Cup and in the league, I think it's, I think, I could be wrong here, but my view on it would be, who knows Marco Vunapu? better than most. Uh, young and experienced guys have been coming off the bench for England but are very exciting with his own hand. Doesn't know the international arena too well. Let's bring a mate of his, put an arm around his shoulder and say it's alright. Um, however, um, with a selection like Matt Stevens, to look at the, his personal life, his history in rugby and I think that's the thing that people will be talking about. And maybe that doesn't even need to be part of the discussion when it's something as big as the Lions. There are a few guys that might be disappointed not to be selected. Um, the few Scotsmen in the, in the front row, I think, might be a little aggrieved. It comes down to one guy's decision in the end, and that's the toughest part. Do you happen to have what the breakdown is? So how many people from each country is, yep. is in the squad? What, what is it? We've got 15 Welshmen. Yeah. We've got 10 Englishmen, 9 Irishmen, and uh, 3 Scotsmen, um, which... Uh, <laughs> It's, I'm getting a bit of stick in the office here today about that. There's there's <laughs> six six guys from Leicester Tigers have been selected, and that's that's oh. double the amount of Scotsmen in this. Year. <laughs> okay. Mate, I I did have a question. They've only in the named in the squad two fly halves. Do you reckon that yeah. leaves a spot open for Wilkinson once he gets through the Heineken Cup? Well, the parents, um, and it's it's the top fourteen final gets played on the same day. That um, that the Lions play the Babas in Hong Kong, and uh, it's strongly believed that Toulon will play uh, Johnny Wilson play against Claremont Auvergne in that final. There's a few other fellas that uh, should be playing in that final that could have been up for selection here, like Stefan Armitage, um, could have been available. Um, I think the rumour that's going around at the moment that Wilkinson has been spoken to about being on the backup list in case something go, something happens. But the other thing I've heard is that Stuart Hogg uh, has been brought, young Scottish, 21 years old, youngest guy on the tour. He's been brought in not so much as just a fullback, but as a utility back because he can play, 50, play 15, he can play 13, he can play on the wing if they need him. Um, and the rumour is, and this is another thing that's caused a lot of indignation, is that he could be potentially going as a backup 10 with no experience whatsoever. Holy which is something that these could be could be licking their lips about, I think. Uh, wow. and, and I see the original list I saw had Connor Murray as a ten as well as a nine. Is there any Connor Murray? Was, I did not see that. Yeah, well, I know the list. The later lists don't have that, but I just wonder whether yeah. that was an inclination that he could be a backup ten as well. Well, when you've only got two, I mean, regardless of the fact that you've only got twelve games. Effectively, you could be saying, "Well, we need a, we need a backup ten on the bench, so these two could play every single game if they stay fit." What do you do? Do you play an hour with one and twenty minutes with the other, and then swap it around for the next game? It's a, it's it's a grueling, even though there's only twelve games. So, I suppose you have to start considering where where our surprises come in. Uh, Connor Murray, like Mike Phillips, is abrasive as scrum halves go. They like carrying into big forwards. They like pushing the pace round the side of that ruck. So whether they've gone, yeah, he can take the pressure if big hits come in, if we've got 
we've got um, Orbitan Blindside flying at him at 100 miles an hour. Maybe he can take the knocks, and that's fine, and we can give the others a rest. But um, that's a massive, massive if that's the case. Mm. So, mate, just to finish off then, so how does this leave you feeling? You, and, and what's the tone over there? Is, is this selection making people think, hey, actually, we've got more, you know, we've got more here than we thought and uh, this will be easy or, or what? Sorry, sorry, I broke up. Can you, can you say that again? Yeah, no, just gonna, I was just saying, having seen this selection now, what's the tone over there? Are people sort of saying, hey, this is actually a, a great-looking squad, this is going to be easy, or, or is it the other way? I think it's a bit early to tell. I think we're still at that stage where people will say, favourites not selected. Um, but I think slowly we'll come to that recognition of, right, every single one of them line now, rather than having a nationality. And I think with that, you've got the inclusion of Brian O'Driscoll and Paul O'Connell as senior players behind um, Sam, Sam Warburton is something that I will encourage a lot of people and they'll say, got a mentality there, we've got the base. Yeah. Um, it just goes into the, the short training period and it turn around before they travel off to play the Babas. With guys like that, they could do it. They've got other leaders in the squad, guys like Alvin Jones from Wales as well, second row. I think the mentality now is what we've got here is up to it. It's just whether or not we can get them cohesive and point. And um, I suppose that's the greatest challenge of a touring squad like this. Um, optim- I think so, but it's a bit early to tell. Um, it's, it's interesting. We, we talk about line selection and their teams as far back as a year ago. And at that point, people were saying, the Aussies, definitely, we'll, we'll stuff them. It's, it's a, it's a, um, now a little bit more apprehensive, and we'll have to see how things go, but the glass is half full, I think. Okay, fair enough. All right, mate, look, thanks very much for talking to us. Um, we'll no doubt talk to you um, right. in between time and maybe hear from you on the site as well. i better let you get back to that newsroom. Yeah, I'm going to go back and take another ribbing over the amount of Scots on the squad. <laughs> thanks, Alan. Thanks, mate. Good to talk to you. Cheers, fellas. Bye. Anyway, enough of that Lions talk. Let's talk Super Rugby from last weekend. We had some uh, cracking games, uh, um, as most weekends turn out. Um, It's not Timsy, so I'll go chronological. Uh, the Hurricanes were upset by the Stormers. I didn't see any of that, but it also upset my tipping. Only one I didn't get this round. Uh, it's a good, good match. Was it? Yeah. Because I think the Stormers came back in that one, didn't they? Uh, they did. They came and took the lead. But then, you know, it looked for all money like the Hurricanes were going to get some points towards the end. And, you know, it went quite a while. I think the last points were scored with 15 minutes left, so, you know, a really good last 15 minutes. Both teams, there's only two points in it, so both teams looking to try and get down and get a penalty to either win or secure the game. Mm. Yeah, so it was good. Okay. Um, and yet another one against the Kiwi side. Uh, it's, uh, they are having a shocker. But, um, yeah. and then that on the Friday evening, Reds doing it in the end, um, you know, Last minute stuff, but it means that they're four zip against the Kiwi sides, and they've uh, you know managed to you know win all their games against the Kiwi sides this season. Twelve uh, eleven against the Blues. Uh, you were there, mate. What, what, what did you make of the game? Mate, watching the game, and I I just don't know whether this came across on TV. I've watched it 
on playback since then. Mm. That was, without doubt, the fastest game of Super Rugby that I've seen all year. Mm. The only one that I reckon challenges it was uh, the Chiefs and the Highlanders earlier in the year. And I, I've watched, if you look at the interview with James Slipper at half time, where he comes off the field and I think he spoke to Cano, I mean, the bloke's basically got his hands on his knees going, I really can't talk. I'm yeah. absolute stuff. Yeah. And I know Will Gannier has since said he has never been as exhausted in, in any test match or any game of rugby he's ever played. Yeah. Um, the Reds made something like 240 tackles. That's mad, isn't it? And after the, the bludgeoning that you know both the Brumbies and the Reds gave each other the week before, they were absolutely out on their feet. Mm. Um, you know, and I, in the press conference, and I reckon this is a fair point, Sir John Kerwin said that should have been a game where the score was 30 to 29. Yeah. Because honestly, both sides threw the ball around. They had attacking intent. And yet both sides just threw themselves into the defence. So in a game where the Reds haven't scored a try and the Blues have scored one try, it was the intent that made it entertaining. It was it was fantastic to watch. Yeah. And can I tell you, Will Genia at the base of the ruck, because of the speed of it, and the Blues were fantastic at the breakdown. They really, really attacked the breakdown. Genia, I can't tell you how many breakdowns he saved for the Reds by just getting there and making something happen yeah. when I reckon any other halfback in, in the world, you would have had another 10 turnovers. I, I think the Reds, I don't know how many they had um, without well, looking at the stats, but gee, well, they had a lot. Well, it was, yeah, I mean, that was one of the stats that, that really hit me was that it, I think it was 9 to 1 um, as far as kind of ruck turnovers went um, throughout the game, so in, in favour of the Blues. And, and the Reds, it, it looked to me that I couldn't help but think there was maybe um, a, a you know a, a, a tactic in there because the Reds also didn't give I think they only gave away one penalty at the breakdown it was something ridiculously small um, and and whereas we both know that the Reds when they want to they can make um, you know the, the breakdown a, a shit fight um, like the best of them they really didn't um, and do you think that was just the pace that the Blues were keeping on it or? Because I mean, because you know, talking to the pace, I mean, rucking good stats had told um, told me that I think it was like forty nine minutes in play, um, which is a good. Ten, is that right? You know, it's a good ten minutes longer than most matches. I wasn't aware of that stat, but that doesn't surprise me. No, I actually don't think it was a tactic. Yeah. You'd, you wouldn't have a tactic on your own ball of not getting into the breakdown. No, I just think it was the pace of it, and as I said, the. The Blues were magnificent. Um, so what do you think they, that the Blues had seen in the Reds game that made them think, this is the way we're going to do it? I mean, they wouldn't kick it, and they just ran and ran and ran. I mean, you know, 14 phases was nothing for the Blues on the weekend, was it? It was 22 phases in the first play of the game. Yeah. And we were all sitting there just saying, what's going on here? And then they ran it from everywhere. I think they looked at it and just thought, you know, the, the Reds with Yuani Cooper in the back three when they're on in defence, which turns into attack, mm. you know, we just can't kick the ball to them. Yeah. They're just too good in that area. So, you know, can we match them in that? You know, the Blues probably can, but you just don't want to give a team like the Reds um, that opportunity. It's the same tactic that the Reds used against the Chiefs. Yeah. You know, 
try not to give the ball back to that back three that can do so much damage. Mm. Uh, it was a great tactic. Uh, they talked a lot about the Blues having a really young squad. And I think young, I don't know about age, but inexperienced. They are very inexperienced. Mm. And, you know, they basically sold them on a game plan and they stuck to it. And th- they were fantastic. Mm. They, they are going to be a real threat in the competition. Um, I know they've now dropped out of the lead of New Zealand conference as a result of it. But, look, watching it live, it was one of the most exciting games I've seen all season. Yeah, sure, it wasn't four tries to three, but it was a classic game of rugby. Mm. Um, I spoke to Jim Tucker on Saturday, who wrote an article on Saturday, in the paper on Saturday morning, which was not, you know, was actually not uh, that, well, he was a little bit critical of the Reds. You know, that they had been a little bit boring and hadn't happened. And then he'd gone back and watched the game and he said to me, you know, I might have been a little bit harsh. I didn't, you know, watching it live, I didn't see quite what was going on. Um, And it was a game that when I've watched uh, a couple of times since then, looking at specific things, it it was so fast. You couldn't pick it all up in one viewing, as far Mm. as I was concerned. Mm. Well, it did seem to fry out a, a, a bit of that Reds kind of structure I think I, I don't I mean there was a few people had similar comments to what you were saying which is it just didn't look like whether the Reds ran out of puff or ran out of ideas at the end you talked about Will Ginya I think one of the things he did was uh he you know he, he really took it on his, on his own shoulders didn't he and he started making those breaks around the rocks and it looked like he decided you know if the team wasn't able to by the end of the game do it he, he kind of took it on himself yeah yep and I've no doubt the Reds were fatigued Mm. You, you could see it. There were players there that are very fit who were absolutely out on their feet. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, at the end of the day, though, um, a win. Uh, and and some interesting things. I think one of the interesting things that came out of that game and also happened last week. I don't know. Did you see Robbie Deans's, um interview on Fox Sports uh, when he was talking about Quade Cooper last week? Yes. Um. I remember, you know, I was watching that, uh, actually watching that with my dad, and the thing we both, we turned to each other and said it was, pre- I thought, we thought it was pretty clear between the lines there was, you know, that one of the things Cooper was going to have to do is step up in defence. Yeah, um, well, he called it, there are certain accountabilities. Yes. So we, I know in the press box, every time Cooper made a tackle, we were saying, oh, there's an accountability. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was code for he's got to defend. Yeah. And you could see, it seemed to me that that message had got well and truly through, hadn't it? Well, I don't know if that if that was that message. I reckon mm. the message has been given a lot earlier. Yeah, Cooper yeah. this year, every game he plays has got better in defence. Mm. Let's let's not kid ourselves. He had a problem in defence. He'll still miss the odd tackle, but he has really stepped up this year. Um, and I know he's defending at the back, but even when he, he's defending in the front when there's a turnover... He still defends very well. He, I mean, and he's made some great tackles at the back. Mm. If you think about the tackle he made on Mog the previous week, which was a, effectively a try saver, mm. you know, he's got the technique, he's got the attitude. We saw that in the, the tackle he put on uh, Rene Ranger on the weekend. Mm. Um, you know, and I know everyone says you know they're hiding him, but then you look at the break that the Reds made in the first half when Cooper was back at the back. And he was the one who made that break down the left-hand side. Yeah, that just but, came from nowhere. All of a sudden, he kind of looked up and, he, you know, he's obviously just had a bit of a mismatch, but he just read it perfectly, didn't he? 
Yeah, and the, the thing that, and I was calling it at the time, earlier in the year, he, you watch him, he goes to throw a pass. Earlier in the year, he would have thrown that, and it would have been an intercept, and it would have been a try mm. to the Blues. He held it, went through, and then threw the pass. And but for Rod Davies going right when he had three men unmarked on the left, yeah. that would have been a try. Now, that, that attack does not happen unless Quade Cooper's at fullback. Yeah. If he's up in the front line defending, he's either on the ground or he's too far back up to get back to that, and you're going to have a fullback who may or may not happen. But the Reds, that is a clear tactic. It is not hiding Quade Cooper in defence. Mm. I know everyone will say, no, no, that's that's not the case. But think back to the uh, the games against the Blues last year where Quade Cooper scored that try down the, the near side touchline. Oh, sorry, he didn't score the try. Ben Tapawai scored it where he got the ball, beat about four men, you know, did some incredible things, and then the offload, and tap away, he goes and scores. Again, doesn't happen if he's not at fullback. Mm. And now, it was, it, it was that's all... not going to happen in the Wallabies. If he plays for the Wallabies, he will be in the front line defending. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and, I mean it, it may not have started that way, but it's kind of, you know, it's it's definitely got there um, now, hasn't it? Um, I mean, the one th- my final comment will be, you were just talking about the defence. Obviously, when you have that many, you know, 230 tackles is just something unheard of in a game. But when you're kind of doing that, you're going to miss a few. But I must admit, I, I did feel, even in the early in the first half, it seemed to me some of the Reds' reading of defensive situations was a bit off. Um oh. Quite a few Particularly pe- Rod Davies. Yeah, and I thought, I think Diggers as well, um, I think maybe even Taps, uh, you know, they really, they got sold on a few dummies. Um, yeah. and, and there's a couple of, du- a bit, few bits of double marking, few bits of people not trusting that, you know, the outside man, you know, that, that sort of stuff. Um, which My impression through the whole game, and I said this during the game live, that the, I thought the Reds were hanging on. Yeah. I didn't think they were dominating in defence. They were... Absolutely, you know, at any moment it could break. I put it to Link that he wouldn't have been happy um, with the number of missed tackles. And as he came back and said, mate, I don't really care about the number. If we've made, and he said to me at the time, you know, over 200 tackles, he didn't know the number at the time. He said, I reckon you'll find the percentage is really good. And the important thing is we scrambled really well to cover up any misses. Yeah, they did. Um, but yeah, I, I did. I spent the whole game thinking this is going to blow open yeah. for both teams, mm. but certainly the Reds. I, I wasn't confident that they were going to be able to defend it. So, yeah. but I tell you, one guy who makes a massive difference, and he he kind of got unsung. And just after we published the team of the week this week, I thought, you know what? Actually, he should. I think he should have been in there. It was um, Ant Fanger? Yeah. Um, yeah. His defence. You know that kind of, you know, that rabbit or stinger or whatever you want to call it, when he comes out of the line and just chops down his opposite man and just stops a whole attack in its tracks. And he, I don't know how many times he did that, three, four, five times in that yeah. game. Um, but, you know, sometimes when there's an overlap, other times just stopping it dead in a track and he, he catches somebody, you know, 20 metres behind the, the gain line almost. Um, he just, massive difference. I think he was the difference between winning and losing that game, really. Oh, I, I don't disagree. And he's the leader of the defence. So yeah. if you if you listen to the ref mic um, using sports ears, you can hear the voice all the time. Here's the one calling what's going to happen. Mm. And you're right. At, at 13, it's the hardest place on the rugby field to defend because you've got to make that decision. Do I go up, as you say, rabbit it up and mm. shut it down or not? And he's very good at it. So, yeah, he was good. But as good as the Reds were... I 
I must say the Blues were outstanding. Mm. They are they are really going to be a threat in the competition. Yeah. Well, considering they're only you know they're only a year into this kind of new regime, aren't they? And they were yeah. a, a complete basket case twelve months and, ago. And look, I was so impressed with John Kerwin, his tactics, the way he talked to the guys. Um, you know, some of the comments he made at the, uh, the press conference. You know. He he strikes me as a really good coach who's really in tune with a group of young blokes. Yeah, yeah he's, he's looking uh, All Blacks coach of the future by the sounds of things, and I guess that's how he's setting himself up. Yeah. I mean, he's done the international stints. Um, so, yeah, you would think he's uh, putting himself on the throne. So, okay, so that, that was uh, the Reds game, um, an important game and an important win. Um, then on Saturday, the Chiefs uh, managed to beat the Sharks, 37-29. That was an amazing game. I, I switched that on in the morning, and I think in tw- after 20 minutes, the, the Chiefs were up 24 points to nil, yet the Sharks still managed to push them until the very end. Um, quite, uh, quite an amazing game. Uh, these, it was. These, these South African teams aren't rolling over so easily on, the, on tour these days, um, which is a pity. Um, <laughs> and then that evening, well, they were back, weren't they, the Brumbies? Um, they won 41-7. I want to say, was it a five or six tries that they, they managed to rack up against the force? Um, whatever it was, it was a lot. Um, and some, some really impressive, in that first half, they just um, absolutely, their back line just obliterated the force, didn't they? It was, yeah. uh, it was quite a show. What, what stuck out for you? Well, it was six tries, but what stuck out for me was the whole thing. It was mm. absolutely outstanding. Mm. I looked at that and thought, you know they are, they would have to be the favourites to win the title this year. Mm. It was a complete performance. Yes, the backs you know scored. They you know, they scored five of the six tries, but you know the forwards were dominant. I, I just I was very very impressed. Mm. I, I and I think and and Kafe said during the commentary he he picked up some changes in the attacking structure. They're evolving. And you do have to evolve as you go through because teams start to predict what you're going to do. Mm. And they are evolving. They're the complete package, I reckon. Well, for, for me, a key part of that evolution, I completely agree with you, um, was, uh, was Matt Tamua um, and what he started to inject. Because I thought I saw a game from him I don't think I'd seen before, actually, uh, on, on, on Saturday night. Um, he was flatter. He was, you know, hitting the line at pace. Um, and then also it sounds like he'd, you know, if uh, uh, Quay Cooper was picking up the message from, from Robbie Deans, it sounds like maybe he was as well because, you know, his defence as well, he's putting on some big hits. Um, well, you know, you know, I'd reckon, I, and this, I don't want to be disrespectful to either player, hmm. but I'll say Matt Tamur is the new Beric Barnes, but with added benefits. Now, Beric, <laughs> Beric Barnes has been... The solid player, you know, very you know, not not conservative, but you know, solid, um, great in defence. You know, can get the job done when it needs to be done. Uh, who looks very composed. Um, Barnes has looked less composed in the last twelve months, I reckon. But Matt Tamua has all of that. He doesn't have the flair of Quade Cooper or James O'Connor or Kurtley Beale, mm. but he's doing a very solid job. But he's got the added benefit of you know, he's adding some things that we haven't seen, like that offload for the try down the left-hand side. You know, we mm. haven't seen a lot of that. 
No. We've seen him distributing the ball and then backing up. Um, we also haven't seen the strong defence that he put on the other night. So, mm. you know, there's a. I reckon there's a very good possibility. And there was an article the other day, Wayne Smith wrote an article that said, you know, pick your, and I, I love the article and I love the line. The line was, pick your team, but pick your plan first. Mm. If Robbie Deans is going to play a conservative game plan again, distribute the ball, don't miss any tackles, punch the corners when you have to, Matt Tamua could come into calculations. Mm. Yeah. Well, if you're going to play a, an all-out attacking game, yeah. you know, he's probably two or three. Mm. Yeah, no, because he's, he's slotting into that because the Brumbies certainly know how to do that. Um, you know, like we've talked about before, when, when they're in their own half, you know, they will not, you know, they won't play. And so, you know, he's definitely been having, you know, that practice and he definitely knows how to do that. And, um, and that's Robbie Dean's game plan as well, so. Yeah. Mm, very interesting. Um, I'm just trying to think, what, what else kind of happened? Well, well, well what else happened was on the other side of the park. Mm. There was a team in blue or purple or whatever it is, and they were woeful. Mm. Well, the thing about the force, though, is they haven't been giving away games by much this season by memory. Um, you know, and they got, well, they're only a week or so off where they rolled the Crusaders. Um, there's not a lot of superstars in there, but up until now, they really hung on. Um, but, uh, you know, the Brumbies just blew them wide open. Yeah, and, but they, all, they just weren't in the contest. Mm. They didn't look in the contest either. No. There was nothing I could say from the force that you would say, oh, but we did this well, no. and they were just too good. They were completely outclassed all across the park. Mm. Great they won against the Crusaders. Gutsy effort, really good win, but they looked completely in a different class this week. Mm. Yep. Okay, well, the Brumbies roll on. Um, now, then we had an overnight match uh, on Sunday, our time. Uh, the Bulls uh, eventually beating the Waratahs 30-19. to um, I think the Waratahs managed to kind of work their way back. I, I must, I'll confess I've only seen the first half of that game. The Waratahs kind of managed to work themselves back in, but then the, the Bulls through, the, through Kickbot 3000's boot um, managed to, to get away to uh, 30-19. Uh, one of the things I think that stuck out in that game was um, Izzy Falau again. Um, the try he scored in the, in the first half, where it really was a case of, it was just, he just made two one-on-ones and he made both tacklers look like idiots. Um, yeah. You know, and you just think, wow. You know, and it was it was kind of, um, I think it was towards the end of a move. There wasn't a lot of space. Like, you know, maybe he was in the 15-meter channel. Um, and it was kind of three on three. He just went around a guy and then had basically had the fullback and went around him as well. Um, just, and you can really start to see what that would mean at international level, especially with the lines coming up, can't you? If he can do that, maybe just on one tackler, you know, that's all you need. But that's just gold dust in international rugby. Yeah. Look, I, I think there's going to be one spot available in the back three mm. for the Wallabies, and I think that is going to be competed for between Falau and Mog. Yeah. And Mog played brilliantly on um, Saturday night, and then Falau came out and I thought probably did even better. Um, and I think, you know, I don't know which one they'll go with. I don't think you can start both of them um, for their first test in the Lions test. Falau was fantastic. Mm. 
But uh, and look, so were the Waratahs. The Waratahs played really well, and then they they just lost composure towards the end. But the the thing that lost the game for the Waratahs for me was their lineout. Mm. And I, I, this evening I went through and looked at every single lineout as to why they lost the lineouts, and it wasn't the throws. Um, it was a lot of pressure from the Bulls, yes, but it's the predictability of the Waratahs' lineout. Yeah. I mean, effectively, you know, what they do is they throw to the middle, sometimes the back, you know, and, and occasionally the front, but primarily they go to the middle, and they've really only got two jumping options. They've got uh, Douglas, and the, the primary jumping option is Dennis. Mm. They, they will throw to Palu, you know, almost in the, if they have to, um, and they they did try to throw to Tamani once, but honestly, his jump was too slow, and they got up in front and just took the ball off him. Mm. Um, the thing that got me though, and this is this is where the problem because the Bulls know there's only two jumping options, they really mark up hard on those. And there was a line out at uh, in the 49th minute, five meters out from the Bulls line. The score's 12-all, and, and this for me was the game. 12-all, if you secure that line out, you're five metres out, there's a good chance you drive that ball over and score. And the Waratahs had Tamani at the back, they had Douglas and Dennis in the middle, as they did all night, and they had Palo towards the front, and the Bulls marked up really hard on Douglas and Dennis. Mm. They left Palu completely unmarked, and all... All Dennis had to do was turn and go to the front. You win it with Palu, not right at the front, but, you know, sort of back maybe in the two-jumper position, and you drive it over the line. And yet they just went with the pre-planned call, which was throw it to, I can't remember whether it was Dennis or Douglas, and the Bulls were there. They mm. were in front. They took the ball. That was the game. If they'd scored at that point, I reckon the Waratahs win that game. Yeah. And and just looking at the lineouts. You know, just looking at it, you know, okay, it's in the, it's after the event. But you look at it and go, well, they're going to throw there. And the Bulls knew it. And they got up every single time. They were off the ground before the Waratahs jumper went up. So they were reading them so much better. And it was because they only had two real options. Mm. Well, you look at, you know, we've talked about before, we've talked about the Wallabies pack and saying, you know, who's the line-out doctor? And, and, you know, the news today, obviously, is that they've retained the services of one Nathan Sharp um, as a consultant for the Lions Tour um, to exactly do that, um, yep. is that, you know, you need that IP. You need someone who knows what they're doing, preferably on the field. I mean, you know, it's one thing to have a coach, but preferably you've got someone on the field. But, you know, assuming you've got a, a Kev Horwell or somebody in the Wallaby pack, um, that's not too bad. But when you look at that Waratah pack and, you know, what is, is, is Dave Dennis the line-out brain of the Waratahs? Um, he is, which is a bit of a worry, right? Yeah, he's he's a good lineout jumper. Mm. I don't think he's he's a lineout brain yeah. like a Nathan Sharp is, yeah. or like a Rob Simmons is, yeah. um, or like, or a, like Vic, a Ben Moen. or like a Victor Maxfield who's coaching the Blues and no doubt had <laughs> had this well, tape before they got there. I reckon of those guys I just mentioned, the only one that comes close is Sharpie. But yeah. um, you know, Ben Moen. He's he's got a really good line-out brain on him. Yep. Um, if you look at what happened there, and you know when we we've looked at the Lions pack, um, what that'll be, they're going to have a really good line-out. You need a good good line-out operator. Mm. So 
Uh, I think Ben Mullen, that particular skill he has, which is, he does very well, you know, is going to hold him in good stead because Rob Simmons is the other one. He's very good. You know, he's competing hard on a lock spot. Ben Moen competing hard. And if you can put up Ben Moen against, say, Dave Dennis um, in terms of running the line-out, then I reckon Moen has an advantage there. In terms of line-out jumper, Scotty Higginbotham comes in. He's a great jumper. Mm. Yeah, he's not... He's not been known as an organiser, though. You need somebody who can read line-outs. But, you know, in this, this particular case, that, that Waratahs line-out I talked about, with Cliffy Palo in space, every team has a, an override call. You know, you'll hear yeah. cancel or you'll hear, you know, whatever you'll hear, where forget what the call was because they've marked up on the call, throw it to me, I'm in space. Yeah. And Palo... You know, I know everyone says he's got to be the number eight, and I can understand why, but if he's going to be the number eight, you need a really good jumping number six because Palu is, at best, a fourth jumping option. Oh. He, he stood there, honestly, he was in so much space, it's like amateur stuff. Oh. If you're in that much space, you call the ball to you and you take it, yeah, and you drive it over the line. It's easy. Oh. The ball's marked at the back, and he was clear on the front, and he did nothing about it. Yeah. So he's he's a fourth jumping option at the best. So you need three really good jumpers. Well, I mean, I think uh, it sounds like there's a uh, like there's an article in this, Scott. Um, I know you've kind of written similar ones before, but um, the, I guess bringing it back to the Waratahs, it makes me think that surely, I mean, I, it, it, this really feels like it's baby steps at the moment. Um, they seem to be building a team from the very bottom up, which is you know, first rule is we're not allowed to kick. Now we're going to slowly allow some kicks. Um, uh, you know, one of those seems to be, I mean, you know, Checker must be thinking about, you know, what, what he's going to do with that pack and how it's clear that it's, you know, it's missing a bunch of key things. And one of those has got to be a line out brain. It might be that Kane Douglas, um, can become that, um, uh, you know, uh, but at the moment, you know, they don't, they don't have it. And so you've got to, I do wonder what he's thinking about. Um, what Checker is thinking about with his recruitment there, but um, yeah. okay, let's move on. Uh, so then we had the Cheetahs and the Kings. Cheetahs walked away twenty six twelve, and then yet another game. Uh, the Rebels. Uh, I turned this on in the second half. Couldn't believe what I was watching. They were, I don't know how many points up at that stage. I think you know it was twenty three sixteen or something like that. And then you just watched them slowly give the game away, um, and it was. You know, the, the the scrum fell apart. Uh, they started leaking penalties left, right, and centre. And then I think the turning point of the game was: is it Woodward, the new winger they've got, who's actually Kiwi, yep. I think. Um, yes. You know, just I, I guess he was trying to eat up some distance, but they 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 got a penalty. Um, he tried to get it down, I don't know, close to the line. As it is, he then actually booted it dead. Uh, that resulted in a penalty on their like you know ten meter line. It was a scrum. They gave away a penalty, and it was through the sticks. Um, and that just seemed to say that was the end of the end of the match. Um, a real pity for the rebels, but they seem to have the knack of doing this, don't they? Yeah, and they look. They're a team that has got a long way to go, but are building. Yes, that wood would kick. You know, if you came to game changer, that's the point. Mm. The Rebels, you know, they've been 
belted, I think, what, three weeks ago? Absolutely slaughtered in South Africa. And then they fought back. And then they fought back in their next game. They're showing a lot of heart. And, you know, I, I, look, I was looking at the game. I actually thought they'd win that. I really thought they'd get there. Mm. That they played out of their skin. <coughs> Excuse me. James O'Connor and Scott Higginbotham were absolutely outstanding. Mm. And I reckon the the responsibility for both of them... So O'Connor goes to 10. He's playing that much better because he's got the extra responsibility. And Higginbotham has the captaincy. Since he's done that, he, he's been a different player. Cha- and I mean, It changes him, doesn't it? It's completely changed him. Yeah, and it's, it's different from even what he's done in past years with the mm. Reds where he's been good. And... There was a comment, I don't know where it was, but I read a comment online the other day somewhere that because of the captaincy, he's now playing tighter and is therefore more effective. And, you know, fair comment. He is playing tighter and he he was outstanding. I thought he was the player of the match for the Rebels Mm. um, and led them so well. Well, maybe psychologically, you know, when that responsibility is on your shoulders, then there's not a case of saying, well, I'll let someone else do X and I'll stay out here waiting for Y. Um, you know, when you see it, you, you, you know, and, and, you know, not different players need different bits of motivation, but then again, maybe now he's seen that even if he's in a different situation where he's not captain, he can now see what needs doing better. You know, it's, it's crazy what motivates people and makes people see things, but maybe well, it's also, what it's also different within the team you're playing. So when mm. you're playing for the Reds and you've got some really good back rowers who are doing the work in tight mm. and I have no doubt Link has said to him. I want you out here playing wide. Yeah. This is our game. We're going to move the ball, so I need a back rower to play wide. Um, now he's in at the Rebels where you know, Fugalist is doing a reasonable job at seven, but now somebody else needs to step in tight, and he seems to be doing that. Yep. He, he's playing out of his skin. I, I think he's played himself over the last few weeks into real wallaby contention. Whereas three weeks ago, I was saying, he's no chance. He's out of form. Yeah. Okay. But um, at the end of the day, uh, another loss to the Rebels. And I, like you say, though, it's amazing how they keep finding something, though. Um, it, it just says to me that there's something there that I, I don't know where it is, that if it's a culture change or a coaching change or something. Um, you know, the right coach going in there uh, we, you know, you and uh, uh, Timsey had this conversation on the podcast a few weeks ago. You know, for somebody going in there, because I think the bet would be it's not going to be Hill past the end of the year. Um, you know, it's kind of like Link with the Reds. There's something there that I think somebody could build on. Um, and so it'd be very interesting to see what happens. And wouldn't it be great if, geez, if we had the three provinces that, you know, the big ones at the end of this year going well, and if maybe the Rebels could just step up. Uh, what a difference that would make. Well, uh, well, you know what I came away from the weekend? Four of the five Australian teams were really good. Yeah. The only team that wasn't really good was the Force. Yeah. Despite the fact that the Rebels lost, they were really good. Yeah. You know, they, they competed against a really good side and a side that will, you know, go very close to being a contender for the uh, the title at the end of the year when they get people like Kieran Reid back uh, and Dan Carter starting again. 
So four or five Australian teams put up great showings. Yes, we you know we only only won two, and obviously one was a local derby. But we're much better this year than we were last year. No, that's for sure. And what does that take us to? Is it eight and two or eight and three against the Kiwis now? Um, I'm not sure on the number, but it's but it, it, it's, it's in that sort of ratio. Exactly. So way um, above where we've ever been. It certainly is. So yeah, no, that's 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 looking great. Okay, yeah, no, I think that's a good way to summarise last week's games. Yeah, right there, right there. Okay, so just uh, left. It's been a long show tonight, so all we need to do now is just kind of give it a quick wrap-up. Let's look ahead to the games. We've got Friday, the afternoon game, is the Blues hosting the Stormers. Then we've got the Rebels hosting the Chiefs. And you might have said you knew how that was going to go if the Chiefs hadn't been playing so badly and the Rebels hadn't been giving people a shock. Um, uh, I'm guessing you'd probably still tip the Chiefs there, would you? Yeah, they they were pretty good in that uh, first 20 minutes against uh, the Sharks the other night. Mm. Then seem to just sort of switch off. Mm. They've got a bit uh, of a, they've got a bit of a wobble, but anyway, maybe the rebels can pull out that something that spark that we talked about. It would it would yep. be, it would be. Do good you know if see. the rebels stayed over there or if they come back? So well, no, that's the rebels hosting the Chiefs. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. Don't worry. Don't mind me. Um. So uh, yeah. So you never know at home as well. Um. Then we've got on Saturday Highlanders hosting the Sharks, and then the big one in the evening is the Force uh, hosting the Reds. And I, I lose oh, my memory's playing tricks on me. The Force, did they beat the Reds in their last? Uh, they early did. On? They did, didn't they? So they, did. they came out and played a really good game plan. They shut the Reds down. That's right. Um, I, I don't know whether the Reds were complacent. Um, they shouldn't have been, but they looked complacent on the night. Mm. Um, um, I, d- I certainly don't think they will be this time. They'll be, they'll be looking for payback. And that was earlier on in the season as well, wasn't it? I think they were missing, yeah, they, missing they, a few they, players. Yeah, they didn't have Horwell. Um, but then again, the force, they're going to be hurting from getting belted by the Brumbies last week. So mm. they're going to fire up at home. Yep. But yeah, I expect the Reds will get over them. Okay. And then overnight on Sunday, the Waratahs still touring uh, South Africa. They are away at the Kings. Um, which will be a grind of a match. Um, the Bulls have got the Hurricanes, and then, like at four in the morning, our time will be um, the Brumbies playing the Crusaders. No, no, four in the afternoon. Sorry, Sunday uh, afternoon game. It's a one. nice afternoon game. Yeah, sorry, completely. Hang on, let's go, let's go back to the Waratahs. You've skipped over that one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> why are you worried? Uh, should I not be? Yeah, I think it's going to be tough. I think the Kings at home. Probably, the, I, I would hope the Waratahs could do more here. Um, you know, but the Kings are no one's easy beats anymore, as we've seen. No, I agree. But if if the Waratahs don't win that, mm. then that's the end of their finals hopes. Oh yeah, I mean, sorry, they people, must be hanging on the edge at the moment. Are people still talking about finals hopes for the Waratahs? Oh yeah, I reckon there's still a possibility. Mm. But it's certainly, if they don't win this, and really they need to get a, a, a four try bonus point as well. Yeah. If they don't win it, well, that's it. Surely that's the end of the finals. So. We Australia needs three teams competing, so let's hope they can get there. Mm. But the well, Kings, as we know, you know the Kings, are, you know, man, they're topping the crowd ratings. They've got all these people turning up to watch them. They're fighting really hard. Mm. Yeah, they will not be an easy beat, will they? No, no, they won't be. So, whereas at the start of the year, I reckon everybody would have lined up and said, 
Yep, that's five points. We <laughs> play the Kings, that's five points. No, I don't yeah. reckon it's anymore. No. I mean, it's the, I mean, the untold story, I think, of this whole Super Rugby at the moment is the South African Conference is looking so strong. Um, it's really come on this year. Yeah. Um, okay. So then Sunday afternoon. Yeah, sorry, not Sunday morning. Sunday afternoon. Brumbies hosting the Crusaders. That could be a ding-dong. It's going to be a cracker. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm really looking forward to that game. Talk about two teams that go hard at the breakdown. Um, yeah. And uh, Crusaders like going, taking it wide. Uh, you've got, I think, there's a good chance Carter will be playing. So we'll get to see a bit of his field position play as well. It's all going to be there, isn't it? There's rumours that Kieran Reid may even play. Oh, dear. That's a psychological blow if he's back. Yeah. Yeah, but he's been out for a while. Mm. May even come off the bench if he plays at all. Mm. But, um, look, I, I think the Brumbies can do this. Mm-hmm. The oh, Crusaders, yeah, yeah. The Crusaders looked uh, listless last week at home. Mm. Uh, the Brumbies are at home. Uh, Sunday, an afternoon game, it's going to mean that they can attack. It's going to mean the Crusaders can attack as well, obviously. But um, as I said before, I think the Brumbies are a complete package who could do some real damage. Mm. And, well, and this could be a, a telling game. Yeah, it'll be interesting. We see. I, I still kind of think, as much as I love the Brumbies, and when they've been firing, it's been going beautifully. You know, there's just, you only have to, you know, if you can shut off Mog. Um, and maybe get into Moore's face, uh, you know, all of a sudden, there's not a lot of attack there. So I kind of, you know, through the backs anyway. Um, I keep thinking that every week. Mm. I, I, and I have been thinking that every week. I even thought it last week before the Force. Mm. I thought if the Force came out and played like they did against the Reds, we could see an upset. But the Brumbies... You know, they, they seem to have stepped it up another gear. Mm. So I yeah. think they're a very good chance. But if, as you say, the Crusaders find a way to shut them down and whatever, it has huge implications because with the, the Reds playing the force, and if the Reds don't get five points out of that game, I reckon they'd be very disappointed. Mm. So... If the Crusaders beat the Brumbies, yeah, there's a change at the top of the table again, which I know the Brumbies have got an easier run home, but it's not the sort of thing you want coming into you know the last four or five games before the break. Yeah. It's a very, very important game. Well, the Brumbies have got to be looking at that draw that they had with the Kings. Um, you know, They've got two draws there, both of the Kings and the Reds. Um, making a massive difference on their points. Um, although I probably sense that they feel they got out of jail with the, with the draw of the Reds. Um, oh, yeah. The Kings... I don't think they're unhappy with the draw against the Reds in that game. Mm. Yep. Okay. So that's this weekend. So as usual, the Super Rugby turning out some fantastic um, hits. Um, now, the... we haven't even talked about, this is like a whole other podcast, um, over the last week, you've written a number of articles, um, which I don't even want to think about. And I suggest you forget about how many hours you spent putting into that. Um, <laughs> for anyone who hasn't read them, um, you know, what's last Monday, well, uh, you know, Monday, not last Monday, the Monday before. So just over a week ago, the ARU released its financial report, um, in that there was so much stuff that was 
quite amazing that actually the site's got four substantial articles out of it. The first one um, by a new contributor talked about, um, about Michael, USA Rugger, talked about the participation levels that were in the report. Um, and whereas the report headlined that, you know, we were 30% up in our participation levels in the last year, he went in and stripped out a whole lot of what I think many of us would call fluff, which is, you know, people who are kind of turning up to potentially just turning up to, you know, kind of like uh, sausage sizzles and, and coaching clinics and being counted as participating versus actually being a, a, a registered or, 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 or regular player. And if you kind of strip those out, then what you can see is since 2006, actually our numbers have declined by 30%. And most people I talk to would echo that. So I think what he showed there was, yeah, participation's great, but if you really want to know what the underlying sort of body looks like, um, the picture is not so good. And that's not something that was read, was so obvious, nor was it talked about at all in the report. So that was something Michael brought out, first of all. And then I think you got stuck in, Scott. And Look, like I say, there's so much detail in there, um, but I think the key points were you had three different articles there. The first one just talked about the size of our expenditure, um, how it's even bigger than our than uh, that you know than it's than it's more than our, our revenue in simple terms, um, and also some of the breakdown of that. And I think one of the headlines that came out of that was how much we were spending in corporate expenditure, um, which I think in 2012 was around what was it 16 million dollars. Um, yeah, it actually got up over seventeen million when you include the Sansar office costs. Yeah, so or it was, the share of our costs. So that's the level it was running at when we were only putting, say, five million dollars into community rugby. Um, but then, in the release of those numbers, then, um, and one of the things that I think had puzzled us and puzzled you was how it jumped between two thousand and ten and two thousand and eleven. But in in examining that. Um, spurred on by some comments, um, what you found there was a whole nother kind of uh, puzzle that popped up, which was that actually um, when the accounts had been originally reported in 2011, they'd said that actually their corporate spend was only about $7 million. $7 million. And that when that was, and then in 2012 with his latest reports, they've restated that expenditure and said that actually it's closer to, it was closer to 14. Um, and obviously the big question then was, well, how long has that been going on? And, you know, I guess the question that has to bring out in people's heads is why and how um, was that accounted for before? And I, and I think that was something that you stumbled upon as well, wasn't it? Yeah. But if you look at the reports that we've got right up to and including 2011, basically it says that our overheads, our head office costs or corporate expenditure, whatever it's called, is around $8 million a year. And then all of a sudden, 2011, when I looked at the 2012 numbers, it's up, you know, at over $15 million. Mm. And, I mean, I looked at that and thought, gee, that's a lot of money. I mean, $8 million is a lot as well. I look at that and go, $8 million to run the head office. But fair enough, you can understand that that might happen. But we've been told that it's sort of 8 to $9 million for the last eight years. Mm. I've been back through all the annual reports. There's nothing that suggests that we spend more than about 8 or $9 million a, a year on our corporate. And all of a sudden in 2011, we're over $15 million. In 2012... We're over 17 million. And that just, 
I mean, to me, I looked at that and thought, gee, I didn't realise that our expenditure was that high. And it was only when I went back and looked at what had been reported in the past that I found that it was like 95% higher than 2010. Mm. And, you know, it was like, well, what, have we spent more money that no one was aware of? And it turns out that we haven't spent more money. We just haven't been told that we were spending that money because what happened was about 50% of our corporate expenditure, and that's the title that's used, and we, we, we can talk all day about what that is. We don't know what that is, but corporate expenditure suggests, you know, head office costs has been deducted from our revenue. So there's two problems with that. One, we weren't told previously that that expenditure was being deducted from our revenue. So there was no way that we could know what the true expenditure was or the true revenue was. But when we now find out, we find out that our corporate or our overheads are 17% of all the money we spend. And you compare that to 7% in New Zealand and 10% in South Africa. Mm. And they include their share of the Sanzar office costs. So yeah. we are spending significantly more than our partners in Sanzar on our corporate overheads, if you like. But the biggest problem was we were not told this, and we only found out about it last week. Mm. And despite the fact that I've been all the way back through the reports to 2003, which is the last annual report that the ARU publish, there is no mention of the, in there that certain costs have been uh, offset or netted against our revenue, and we haven't been told about it. So yeah, I mean it's it's a, it, it it raises questions and why that's happened is sort of anyone else's guess, anyone's guess. And um, obviously, if the ARU's got an explanation, we've emailed them. And if they want to tell us, you know, actually, guys, you got the wrong end of the stick. This is why it's happened, or this is what we're talking about when we're talking about corporate. We're more than happy to kind of publish that. But um, with what all what's being told in the report, that's all we've got to go on at the moment. But then I think you touched on the third point there, which was when you start to compare it then to other organisations and when you compare it to um, the NZRFU. And I think what was really interesting there was, you know, the NZRFU's got a crap load of money in the bank. Um, what's, what's it at? Was it 40-something million at the moment? Yeah. So, and this is in Australian dollars. They've mm. got 41 million in the bank. We've got 3 million in the bank. Yeah. And, the and you said to me the other day... Yeah. Oh, yeah, but that's because they had the 2011 World Cup. Yeah. But they only made their net profit in the whole of 2011, including the World Cup and all the Tri-Nations, they only made $8 million. Yeah. So that $41 million, only $8 million of it relates to 2011's World Cup and the whole of 2011. So it's yeah. not... And if we also look at it, you know, the New Zealand's net assets at the end of the year... 77 million Australian, the net assets for Australia, $3 million. Mm. And that's only because we banked money that um, for stuff that we haven't done yet, right? Well, yeah. So our $3 million in the bank includes $12 million of future revenue, mm. including over $5 million we've already banked for the Lions. Now, okay, to be fair, New Zealand's $41 million that they've got in the bank includes $33 million of future revenue. But if you look at that and you say, right, exclude the future revenue from the bank balance, 
New Zealand would still have $8 million Australian, not New Zealand, Australian in the bank. We'd be overdrawn by $8 million. Mm. Um, and I guess the scary thing is, is that even with, I think most people say, oh, yeah, but we're going to have the lines and that's going to see everything right. But that's when you go full circle back to your first article, which talks about how fast we're losing money. And I think, was it $23 million in two years? $26 million. 26. And, and the, the, uh, no one's really put, no one from the AAU anyway has put a number on what they think we'll make from the, the Lions tour. Mm. But let's think about this. We made from the 2003 World Cup, this is the number the AAU told us, $33 million. New Zealand made in the whole of 2011, which included a World Cup, $8 million. Mm. The, the reported the rumoured surplus or the expected surplus, not from the AU, but what's been reported, is $30 million from the Lions Tour. But guess what? We've already banked $5 million of that into our 2012 bank account. So if we do make a $30 million surplus, well, sorry, we've already banked five, so we're down to 25. The AIU in the last two years lost $26 million. So if we do make a surplus of $25 million net after the five we've already banked, if we keep going like we're going, we've got two years left before we run out of money. And, and we a- have 12 years before the next Lions tour. So we need to make some urgent changes to our financial <laughs> and, and no other World Cup, unlike we did back in, nope. back in the day. When, you know, when and, we had- uh, hey, and when we made $33 million from our World Cup, and New Zealand can only make $11 million in their World Cup, it's because the IRB are just taking more money. So a World Cup is no longer the thing we need. Mm. So in the next, you know, between now and 2025, are we going to host a World Cup? Probably not. Why would we go and bid for something where we don't make a lot of money? Mm. So we have to make the $25 million left, if the $30 million number is right, because we've already banked five. We have to make that money last 12 years mm. before the next Lions Tour and hopefully we'll make some more money. No, ain't going to happen. <laughs> so we have to get a lot better at our management than mm. we've been because we can't lose $26 million in two years again. Mm. And it just, it just says, I mean, anyway, the mountain of the task that Bill Pulver must be looking at. Um, he's made some appointments today. We don't have time to go into those. They're kind of wide, widely published and out there. But anyway... You've heard what we've talked about. If you have any questions about any of that, I really advise you to go and uh, have a look at those four articles that we've published in the last week. And obviously, we publish those um, and write those. Just It's just to share the information, really, um, to, to make sure we've all got the full picture. Um, I don't think, and if I'm, you know, we're not trying to put a negative light on things. We're just trying to fully understand what the real picture is because I think, as Michael said in his first article, unless we understand the true picture, how can we fix it? Um, and so we don't want to all be blindly sailing down a road. So that's the idea behind it. Um, yeah, and I think the in- interesting thing with all that, and you and I talked about this the other day, that when Bill Pulver was appointed, lots of people talked about, you know, he's a corporate guy. What's he got to do with rugby? Yes, he played a long time ago. We need a corporate guy. We need to fix the finances of the ARU or we're in serious trouble. Mm-hmm. So he's come out with some announcements today, right or wrong, who knows. You know, we, we don't have enough information to judge on what he's done, but this is a bloke that's walked into a job in a company that's in some serious trouble. Mm. And 
he'll get a bit of a hit from the Lions, but he, he, there's a lot of work to do here. So mm. let's hope he's the right man. Yeah. Alrighty. So anyway, plenty there. Plenty that's going to be coming. Um, a quick ad. Look out for, we've got Lions t-shirts, new Lions t-shirts. I think they're an absolute cracker myself um, that are going to be on the site tomorrow um, in time for the announcement of the Lions squad. If you're not already excited from a couple of weeks back, be excited now. It's all becoming real. Um, anyway, mate, look, great to have you on tonight. It's been an absolute mammoth. Um, and thanks very much for all the work over the last week or so. You've absolutely um, gone great guns there. Um, but, you know, good to talk to you. Yes, it's been. Geez, there's been a lot, hasn't there? Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot going on at the moment. We're gonna have to. Find, we could have done this over two nights. Yeah, we're gonna have to find a way of of, uh, of, of how we do this. Um, and anyway, thanks everybody for downloading. If you've made it this long in this podcast as well, thank you. You obviously have a long commute somewhere every day if you've managed to listen this long. Um, but uh, thanks for tuning in. I hope the oh, and uh, look out for next week, uh, Pod Slam 100, where our special guest will be one Nathan Sharp. Um, which uh, is a great way to celebrate our 100th pod slam. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, thanks for letting us come in your ears, and we'll um, see you next Tuesday. See you all next week, guys. Seven